Well, I want to welcome to everyone to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen podcast. Uh, we're very honored today to have John Fierick. Um, uh, John the Good uh, to many uh, are with us today. And he has had a remarkable life, remarkable contribution. And actually, I'm personally thrilled that we're going to have this podcast today. Uh, uh, and I think um, there's a lot we can learn just with even in a small amount of time of speaking with John. So, John, um, you are Irish. Your parents, where were your parents born? My, both my parents were born in Ireland, and they came over in their late teens uh, alone uh, to America. Uh, did not know each other in this county Mayo, which is one of the uh, third two counties in, in Ireland. Um, and when they came over, it was uh, looking for a job, looking for adventure. Uh, what was it? There was no, uh, no real livelihood. Uh, where they were born, they were, uh, they were born uh, to uh, farming families, uh, uh, poor, uh, poor families. My mother's uh, father had died when she was six, so uh, uh, all of the children were expected to work the land to uh, uh, provide uh, uh, food for themselves and, uh, and, and products that they could uh, sell to others. And, uh, and uh, Island, uh, America was seen as uh, a land of opportunity. And they both, uh, both parents uh, uh, received uh, encouragement uh, from members of the family. My mother's brother, uh, Michael, came to America in 1927, uh, uh, and he encouraged my mother to come the following year. And uh, my father, who came in 1929, uh, uh, was encouraged, I believe, uh, uh, by his mother, because when she was a younger person, uh, I'm told that she visited cousins in Philadelphia. So uh, America was certainly a, 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 a was known to their parents and, uh, and, uh, and, and they were encouraged to uh, uh, individually to uh, see America as, a, uh, as that further shore to, to draw on the title of the book uh, that provided uh, opportunity uh, for a livelihood. John, please do not push the book, all right? This is a serious debate here and all. We're not trying to uh, sell things here. Although, by the way, the website, uh, our website will show actually have you can order the book and I recommend it. It's a fantastic book, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so how would you describe your childhood? It was a happy childhood. Uh, uh, happy in a sense that uh, my world was... Uh, uh, in a very small area uh, with uh, uh, working class families. So many different nationalities were present uh, in, you know, in, on, a, on a block or blocks. Uh, I went to school right around the corner, Catholic school right around the corner for, from uh, where I was born. I also uh, uh, played sports on empty lots that were right there on the, uh, essentially on the street in which I was born. And, uh, and we had a lot of fun. And, uh, and you played stickball uh, with a particular type of ball. What was it? It was called a Spalding. Yeah. And, and, yes, and, 
I have one in my uh, office at, at Fordham Law School. Yeah, I grew up playing stickball in the street, and you played in the street, by the way, not at a field, with uh, a Spalding too, and it was actually very interesting and exciting. Uh, and it's for kids; it was it was great. Um, so, Irish Catholic mostly. Yes, my parents were uh, uh, members of the Catholic faith. Uh, had brought over the, uh, their religion and uh, and passed it along to us. And we saw it in the home uh, through prayers and uh, religious uh, uh, relics and objects on our walls and pictures, and uh, and also their example of uh, of, of uh, saying prayers in the home. Uh, and uh, and right around the corner when I was. Uh, Quite young, I, I went to a Catholic school, and uh, and for eight years I was taught by Ursuline sisters, and I was an altar boy at some point uh, for the rest of my time in grammar school. So my faith uh, was was everywhere, and part of me at home and outside the home. And uh, the neighborhood was all pretty much Irish Catholic, Irish Catholic immigrants, right? Uh, no, it uh, we certainly had uh, 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 Irish Catholic uh, immigrants. We had uh, immigrants from uh, from Italy, from Germany, uh, and uh, uh, had uh, members of a uh, Jewish community. Uh, so there was a it was a uh, where the presence wasn't strong was in in color diversity, but in, ter in terms of national uh, uh, identity. Uh, there were a number of nationalities uh, expressed in, in on our block and around uh, where we played ball. All right. So you played. What you said you played sports and, and uh, growing up. What sports did you play? Well, uh, for the first uh, uh, period of years until probably I got to high school, uh, my favorite sports was uh, uh, certainly stickball. Uh, played baseball and an empty lot uh, across the street from where I was born. Uh, that was, uh, we didn't ice skate, but we used uh, we used uh, uh, roller skates, uh, uh, boxes with uh, you know we skated and played stoop ball, uh, and those were the sports until I got to uh, high school, and then uh, basketball became a much more important uh, part of my uh, interest, and, and I, I I speculated that I had some skills that maybe I should have uh, uh, pursued. Uh, when I was in school, uh, uh, trying out for the teams uh, so I could play basketball. Uh, but I, I found a lot of competition right there in the neighborhood in terms of basketball prowess. What what position would you, when you played in basketball, five on five? What? Well, I I was uh, I was somebody that had a, a, a quotes a, a pretty good uh, one handed shot uh, that uh, when I was. So you were What's that? So you played guard. Well, you could say that. I mean, we just sort of uh, uh, all my shots weren't uh, out from outside. I would I would move under the basket. I I was a little older than some of the kids I played with, and uh, and I could jump higher. And uh, I was a pretty good bounder until we started to play those who were much taller than I was. So you were a jock, basically. Uh, you could say that. Yes. Oh, that's good. Uh, now, in terms of uh, high school. Where did you go to high school? I went to high school in, in Manhattan, you, uh, on 153rd Street and Amsterdam Avenue. Bishop Dubois it was a Catholic high school, part of the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, uh, tuition I paid every month was $5. That's all my father could afford. 
and uh, and uh, I paid no tuition when I was in uh, grammar school because uh, the religious uh, sisters uh, taught, and it was part of high school, a uh, grammar school, part of the Archdiocese of New York. So I had a free ride, so to speak, uh, uh, until I got to college. Yeah, so actually that was not that far away. It was across the river or something, right? It's you sort of take a bus, you go right across on 61st Street, across the McCombs Dam uh, 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 Parkway, and you end up uh, uh, in Manhattan at that point. You would have passed Yankee Stadium and you would have passed the Polo Grounds where the Giants played. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was a, a New York Giant fan. Uh, uh, up and I went up into the public mind. So a lot of actually John's upbringing, it's interesting. I had a lot of the same things. We're not quite the same age, but uh, in that era, uh, a lot of uh, similarities of uh, what we went through as children. Um, all right, so then college. I, I went to Fordham College, I, uh, which was uh, located a few miles from where I lived at Fordham Road. I was on 161st Street. Uh, most of the time I took the bus, the Webster Avenue bus. Sometimes I took the Third uh, Avenue L and sometimes, but uh, not often I took the New York Central that had to stop at Fordham Road. It cost a little bit more than the other two uh, uh, ways of doing it. And, uh, and that was really a luxury that uh, I wasn't able to afford. Yeah. Um, no sports. Uh, at, at, well, uh, uh, that's correct. Uh, except that, uh, uh, well, no. Let me let me qualify that. Uh, at Fordham College, uh, uh, I played intramural football, touch football, not tackle uh, football. I, I wasn't in any of the teams. Uh, but uh, intramural sports was uh, very heavy at uh, Fordham College. Of softball, uh, as 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 uh, and and as and touched and, and football. And uh, and I can recall uh, uh, being on a team that was a very good team, uh, and we competed for the uh, intramural championship. Lost uh, uh, to the business school, who had a uh, a quarterback I would meet later at law school by the name of Jim Tolan. He 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 claims that the team I was on won, but reality was his team won. Uh, wow. In softball, I was on the team that. Uh, at one point, uh, won, won a class championship. Uh, I used to pitch, uh, but when I when, when my classmate Tommy Giordano uh, was in uh, could could pitch, uh, he was the best in all of the intramural sports. I I just played another position. But uh, and then uh, I I recall my my team uh, competing for the championship uh, probably in my last year uh, on uh, Edwards Parade Ground at Fordham uh, University against uh, Tommy Chiodano's team, and, and it was no competition. His team won. And, and so I, uh, I had a lot of fun uh, at pitching softball, a lot of fun, uh, certainly in touch football. And, I was very, and then on my weekends, uh, I worked in a supermarket on 116th Street and Lexington Avenue, Safeway Supermarket, Friday nights and uh, Saturday. And I used to play uh, basketball in the schoolyards down there at lunchtime, sometimes uh, on Saturday, myself and a, a very big uh, fellow who worked in the supermarket, and we, we thought we were pretty good basketball players, but we sure met uh, a lot of excellent uh, basketball uh, players of color uh, down in uh, Lexington Avenue, maybe 110th Street or so. Yeah, wow. Uh, 
Yeah, so actually it's interesting. You, you had an upbringing that was uh, both in terms of interesting stuff on family heritage. By the way, how, how much was your upbringing tied to anything Irish or Irish history or Irish struggles or anything? No, it was tied certainly to um, um, Irish uh, music uh, in my home. And uh, my, my mother sang and uh, I used to see her at, at home uh, uh, doing dances when she had friends over. We, 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 were, we were in the other room, we watched our, our parents. And my father played the accordion or the concertina. And uh, so music was uh, uh, Irish music, uh, uh, stories about uh, 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 lovers uh, uh, losing uh, uh, their, their person they loved in the wars of Ireland. That was all part of our home. Uh, we used to hear our parents talk about that. And also, uh, my mother always uh, packed up uh, uh, used clothes and sent them over to uh, her, her family in Ireland, as well as she could afford a dollar or two. So we were aware of uh, and I, a lot of that in uh, uh, our history growing up. And that, that, was, that was the country that uh, my parents. What about the struggles in Ireland with the English, between the Irish and English? Was that played any part in your upbringing? Well, it, uh, there was a song, uh, um, uh, you know, about the... Uh, uh, a young fellow who uh, uh, lost his life, and uh, and uh, uh, and and my mother used to uh, sing that song, uh, and uh, and 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 that was, uh, and we and we we really hesitated hearing us sing that song because we all cried, and it was about uh, you know the young person. Uh, I, the name is escaping me right now of the uh, uh, of the uh, song. Uh, so uh, and and we used to hear hear stories of uh, of, of of those who uh, who lost their lives in conflict. Uh, so is this before did the IRA come in later or the IRA around then? Well, yeah. Uh, the way I would describe it is that uh, uh, my two uncles, uh, my my uncle James Boyle and my uncle uh, Patrick Boyle, both my mother's brothers. Uh, fought in the War of Independence, uh, uh, 19, uh, 18, 19, 20, 1921. And, uh, and uh, we were conscious, uh, as we got older, I would say, uh, maybe, maybe a time of uh, college and certainly law school, uh, I was aware of, uh, of Irish history because of the participation of my own, uh, my uncles. And well, the IRA was, were the good guys. Well, the IRA, IRA uh, probably went through a lot of uh, a lot of evolution. Uh, uh, I, I, I know back at the time of uh, of, of the, what I call the War of Independence, uh, you had uh, the vol uh, volunteers, the uh, the Irish volunteers, the IRA, and uh, I, I really never uh, seized on uh, on uh, on any particular uh, political affiliation or anything. I, I just that they were. Uh, fighting for their independence, and uh, and when they secured that independence, uh, uh, still not totally, uh, in 1921 and 1922, uh, my uncles left. Uh, they had a hard time with the, uh, the separating out the, the Northern Ireland from the South, and uh, and the loss of the six counties uh, that became uh, Northern Ireland, uh, and 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 there were other. Uh, 
ties to the English crown, even in the peace agreement at that time, that didn't really get fully separated out probably until the 1930s. And, uh, and so uh, um, that, was, that was all part of my heritage, so to speak, in terms of what I came to understand a, a, a little bit later. Okay. All right. So now you go to uh, Fordham Law School. And how was that experience for you? Why, first of all, why did you choose the law? It was a hard decision as I moved along in college as to what I would do when I graduated. Um, uh, I, I had no opportunities other than staying at Fordham as an assistant in the alumni office. I was offered that position by the uh, Father Tim Healy, later to be uh, president of Georgetown. But at that point, he was director of alumni relations. I was very active in student government at Fordham College. So, uh, he saw me as somebody that would make a good student assistant when I graduated. But uh, I, I was thinking about uh, supermarket management. Uh, I had I loved working in a supermarket on 116th Street. I, I thought about uh, uh, whether I had a religious vocation that I should act on. Uh, and uh, and then I, I, I thought about the, uh, politics and uh, having enjoyed, uh, you might say, political activity when I was at Fordham College. And I, I, I began to think of, the, of my, my last part of law, uh, college, maybe in my last year, I started to think, well, maybe, maybe law school is uh, where I ought to go. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and I saw uh, something about law school in, in, on, on, on television, uh, Perry Mason, uh, and I also uh, realized from my political science classes that uh, uh, lawyers are very much involved in government. And, uh, and, and that, that sort of emerged, I would say, in my uh, last year of college. And, uh, and as, for, as for Fordham Law School, I had heard about Fordham Law School uh, uh, and, uh, and, and the idea of staying with uh, a school of, of, of my, my Catholic tradition uh, was, was very much on my mind. And, and I focused on St. John's and Fordham Law School. And uh, when I was accepted by uh, Fordham, uh, uh, I, I don't recall if I was accepted by St. John's or not, but I, I, when I, I think I was. But when I was accepted by Fordham, uh, uh, Fordham was already part of my blood. And, uh, and I heard about it uh, from some of my teachers. And, uh, and hence, that's where I went. Yeah. Now you mentioned a little something about religion. Did you ever think about becoming a priest? Yes, and that was uh, even when I was in even when I was in law school. I, I thought about uh, that subject, and when I was dating my uh, my my wife, uh, uh, and she was thinking about uh, whether she had a uh, a vocation as a sister, and I was. But, but I think uh, at that point I was more focused on what am I going to do when I graduate from law school. I wasn't thinking about vacation at that point uh, I was uh, wondering about uh, politics or, uh, or or maybe possibly being a trial lawyer but I wasn't sure okay uh, so how long so you guys met in uh, law school well yes in my second year in uh, on March 26 1960 uh, the Fordham uh, law school had a trial move court uh, competition for students who volunteered and wanted to uh, try a case. And we, we tried those cases in the courthouses. And, uh, uh, and, and so I, I was a counsel to a case with a, 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 
and 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 each of the uh, there were trials and uh, and and so we competed with each other. You had somebody representing the uh, prosecu prosecution, somebody the defense, and and we had a judge who was a graduate of Fordham Law School who who presided, and we uh, we argued that case uh, or tried the case. We had uh, the uh, jurors. The jurors were women from the neighboring uh, women colleges, Manhattanville, principally uh, uh, on this occasion, and probably New Rochelle and others as well. And so afterwards, we we met uh, the, the jurors. <laughs> the council met the jurors, and I met my present wife. That's my only wife. We've been married almost fifty-eight years. Uh, uh, who was a juror, not in my competition, or another competition. And I, and, uh, I took uh, an immediate interest in her when we started to talk. And uh, and uh, I was later learned that the, the dean said some nice words about me because I had just uh, become an editor of the law review. You were editor in chief, weren't you? Yes. Uh, so hold on. So Emily, that's your wife, correct? Yes. Uh, this was uh, love at first oral argument. I was uh, certainly my part. Uh, um, uh, I couldn't tell from uh, her where she stood, and we separated for a little while because I thought maybe uh, uh, the, the interest wasn't mutual. Uh, but uh, she, she uh, would tell you that, that uh, I misunderstood uh, uh, the uh, signs at that point. Uh, and she went away for the summer, bless my address, so I didn't hear from her. And then, uh, uh, but I had a lot of work to do on the law review. I, I worked day and night on the law review. And wow. it was a humble uh, law review at that time compared to today. So how did you, uh, how was your experience in the law school? Well, it was uh, in my first year, um, uh, we all were very nervous about uh, um, uh, making the grade, so to speak. And I was part of a study group. Uh, 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 somebody became my best friend that uh, died the other day. He was part of that study group. And uh, professor, uh, a former professor at the law school, uh, Mike Lansdorff, sometimes joined us. So we all had gone to Fordham College and we got together uh, periodically during the school year. And that helped us all. Uh, do reasonably well, I would say, on, on a, a grades at the end of the first year. And uh, and second and third year was filled with uh, work on the law review. And that became my dominant activity and uh, probably one of the uh, most important of all my experiences in life uh, because uh, uh, I, I learned uh, to, be, to be more precise in terms of writing, to be careful, uh, not, to, not to make careless mistakes uh, in footnotes and citations and the like. Uh, I made those mistakes in drafts I did in my second year. Editors uh, would pounce on them, and uh, I learned uh, from them, the, the upper-class students who were the editors. And then when I was the uh, editor-in-chief of the Law Review, there was nothing more important uh, than the quality of, uh, of the, all the work that would get published in the Law Review. And, um, and we had a small group. I think there were eight editors at the time. And... Uh, and, 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 and the size of the law review was nothing compared to the present size, six or 700 pages. But uh, that was, as I, as I, I used to say, uh, I treated that like I was working on the Constitution of the United States. Everything had to be perfect. And not to say uh, you didn't make your mistakes, but you didn't make them knowingly. Well, that's a, a very intense, great experience. Um, do you think? Uh, I don't, all right, um, 
in terms of the law review experience, would you say, well, it may be difficult to say, it's the same today? My sense is uh, yes, and I, I tell you why. Uh, I, I wrote a, uh, a draft article for the law review, which I submitted a week ago. Uh, it, it, and it, I think once it, if it gets published, and, I, and it won't get published, but they, they liked it, it explains the 25th Amendment through the words of Senator Birch Bayh. It's his words everywhere uh, uh, as to what was intended so that if someday in the future there's a debate in the Supreme Court or, or a debate among scholars uh, and they want to know uh, uh, what, what does it mean? What's the history? Senator Bayh was the principal author. He was the chair of the subcommittee that, uh, that moved the amendment forward. And, uh, and even though you have two houses of Congress and he's in the Senate, uh, his leadership uh, was dominant. And, and, and what he said, uh, a, a court uh, uh, need, would need to pay attention to and, and any question that came before the court. And, and, and not to do so, I think, would be a failure of discharging uh, responsibility. That's not to say legislative history could be confused and there uh, could be different views about it. Maybe the letter of the Constitution doesn't support it. And, and that's, that's all part of the debate. But at least somebody should have in that debate the words of Senator Biden. Now, having said that, uh, the young uh, second year student working on my article uh, reaches out and he said, I think you have uh, this quote that you have in there is incorrect. It, it really belongs to Senator Fong, not Senator Bai. I said, oh my heavens, how did I, <laughs> you know, I said, I, I'm, I said uh, uh, how could this happen? I said, uh, it's, clearly, it's clearly due to my age. And, uh, and because I learned that you had to be 100% on those footnotes. So really great work. Uh, his name is uh, Zachary Hoff, Hoffman. And uh, I said, thank you for preventing a mistake going forward. I used to be a student and with my uh, classmates trying to do that for authors of articles. Here's somebody doing it for me. Yeah, well, one, the interesting thing about uh, the story, a very important point is junior people are actually crucial because senior people are busy, might remember it a little different way. They have to make sure that things are correct and they can't be hesitant about, oh, I, have to, I can't because this famous guy, John Ferrick said it or something. No, you have to speak up because that's what senior people need. They need people, junior people who will say, no, hold on and let us rethink this or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so whether you're an associate in a firm or whether you're in a law review, it's the same principle that junior people should, should take pride in what they do and also speak up when necessary. Yeah, and if I could just add one more point, when I went back to uh, the Senate debate, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Fong of Hawaii uh, uh, was was a collaborator with Senator Birch Bayh, and uh, and when I uh, and, when, and his uh, Bayh's remarks followed his, and Bayh's remarks adopted what he said, and so uh, with additional words. So I said to uh, the young uh, young uh, person working on the article, "What if we tie keep the keep Fong's quote in there?" but tie it to uh, Birch Bayh, uh, what he said. And he comes back to me. He said, what do you think of this? I said, it's perfect. And thank you. Yeah, that's great. You know, John, J 
just in this little time here, you have an incredible memory. You know, the date in which you met your wife, I mean, most men, uh, how many years you were married? I mean, a lot of men can't even remember their anniversary. Uh, so have you always had an, uh, an excellent memory? Well, I, I, I guess you might say uh, over the years, uh, um, people have commented about my memory, but uh, I, I don't hold it out now, you know, as uh, I, I, there are a lot I don't remember anymore. And, but uh, there's a lot stored away that somebody could stir, stir up and it would come back to me uh, in, a, in a conversation. So, um, you know, and the things that are important events in life that uh, it's like when President Kennedy was assassinated. It's like when the law school's uh, doubling of its facility took place. Those are days uh, were very important to me and uh, I don't forget those. Yeah. Um... Do you think there's going to be a 25th Amendment issued at all in the near future? I'm sorry, do I have any? Do you think there's going to be a constitutional uh, issue in the near future that, I mean, well, the reason you're doing this article is that basically because you're powering up in case there's going to be a debate about the role of the amendment or not? No. Oh, um... Uh, we celebrated the, uh, a few years ago the 50th anniversary of the, um, uh, of the 25th Amendment. We had a program at the law school. And then when Senator Birch Bayh died, we had a, another program at the law school a few, uh, a few uh, maybe two years ago. And, uh, and we had uh, a lot of wonderful people uh, 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 who participated, women and men, uh, about his contributions uh, to the Constitution, Title IX, open to sports for, for women in sports, and in other areas, uh, we're part of that program. And, and the Law Review is going to publish uh, uh, remarks from that program and any papers anyone wanted to uh, submit. I was a, I was a, a co-sponsor, you might say, of, of the program, and I thought I should write an article, uh, not rely on, on the transcript of what I said, and an article that would be different from any article uh, I, I've written on the subject of, uh, of uh, presidential succession of 25th Amendment. And it's, it really is a tribute to somebody uh, who was a great senator. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was really my, uh, my purpose in doing the article. Nothing to do with what might happen uh, at any time now or in the future concerning that subject, other than uh, it would be available as a resource. Uh, and it supplements my book, you know, as you where I wrote a book uh, on the 25th Amendment, which some people are considered the source book on the subject and has three editions of that book now. And, and it's another way of taking material that's in the book, maybe not in the book as well, and just adding to it through, through an article. Okay, we're going to put uh, on the website also that book as well. So John, you might actually, and I'm expecting 10%, by the way, of any sales that come from that website. <laughs> That's not um, going to be, don't look forward to that as an annuity because uh, so far, I don't think any of my writings have been situated and uh, uh, certainly nothing for me and I wouldn't take anything. I don't accept anything for anything I write. I, I give it to the Fordham University Press, whoever might uh, be publishing what I wrote. And uh, so don't, uh, don't, don't count on that, uh, a royalty on this one. Okay. Uh, so then after graduation, you go to Scadden. How did you make that? It's a small firm. How did you make that decision? 
Well, in my second, uh, I made the decision in part um, um, because uh, when I was working on the law review uh, as a staff member in my second year, I recall being in the library and the registrar of the school, we had no career services office coming into the library and asking me if I had a job for the summer. And I said, not really. Uh, I could have gone back to the firm I was at uh, uh, as a process server and, and filing papers in court my first year of, of law school. But I, I was thinking I would do something different that uh, the coming summer. And so all of a sudden, she uh, uh, says, call Mr. Moore of Skadden Arps, which is a 10-loyal uh, firm. He wanted a Fordham uh, uh, student down there. And I went down right away and uh, and uh, and got the job offered. There were two of us, one from Cornell, one from Fordham that summer. May have, st may have started the summer program at Skadden. I don't, I don't recall. And... Uh, and uh, I do tell the story, and students like hearing the story when I tell them that. I had no resume. Uh, he, he didn't understand why I didn't have a resume, and I didn't understand I needed to have a resume. Uh, nobody told me so. So uh, uh, he wrote out my first resume on a yellow sheet of paper and says, bring it to Mr. Arbs. He was a co-founder of the firm because he was going to interview me after that. And, uh, and, and he said, when you get back to the school, type it out and send it back. <laughs> So uh, that's the story of my first resume. All right. So, and uh, you then oh, went to the labor I, I worked at the firm that summer. They offered me a position. And uh, I, while I had an opportunity to go some, to some large firms because Mulligan, the dean, insisted I go down for some, some interviews, but a small firm was always who I was. You know, just a... A, a small group, you know, it's, it's like working in a supermarket. It was not a big group. And it's, and, and, uh, and that's really why I went to Skadden. Uh, I, I really didn't know a lot about it, but I had a good summer experience and, uh, and, and the partners, uh, you work directly with the partners. You don't have any intermediate levels because there weren't many people there. So how did you choose labor law? Uh, it was just an accident. Uh, because uh, uh, when I came to Skadden, you did a lot of different things as a young associate. Uh, you might, uh, I remember uh, working on a, um, a, a trust and estate matter on, a, on helping put together a proxy statement we filed with the SEC. Uh, 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 I recall doing real estate closings and, and, the, and the firm represented uh, some airlines, New York Airway and Pakistan Airlines, and also a, a union in the printing field. Uh, and Mr. Moore had that representation. And the first matter I got was help him on a, on a matter against the New York Times as to uh, how many people should work a certain uh, machine that uh, had members of the union working on. It was a new machine. So, and then uh, the partner that was involved with New York Airways asked me to work on a, uh, or Pakistan Airlines asked me to work on a collective bargaining matter where, uh, Unions were seeking with the airlines or, or New York Airways a contract. So I found myself getting experience in labor, and I and, and that became my my area at the firm. I was starting to be identified as the years went on and the firm grew. Well, he's the labor guy, and uh, and uh, and then when I became a partner in nineteen, uh, um, I think it was nineteen sixty seven sixty eight. Uh, somebody said to me, uh, who became a partner also with me, he said, John, why don't you, why don't you be a trial lawyer? You could be a pretty good trial lawyer. 
I said, no, I, I just enjoy uh, um, problem-solving kind of activities I do for the uh, uh, labor compliance of the office. And that was a practice that was growing at the time. Okay. So have you ever tried a case? Yes. Uh, uh, I tried uh, a case. Uh, uh, there was an actuarial firm, Alexander and Alexander. And uh, the, the judge would judge Martinez. His son died a tragic death at some point. He went, went back in time. And, and it was not a jury case. And, and, uh, and uh, they were trying to get uh, somebody to pay a bill. It may, it may have been 50 or 60, $70,000. That was a lot of money at the time. And, uh, and, and I had to try the case. I was a, a nervous wreck trying the case uh, and tried the case before a judge. So when, uh, there was no jury and, uh, and, uh, and the company was successful. And, uh, and therefore, you had a judgment. And, and and I'm and I'm not sure that the uh, the person that was uh, sued to pay pay the bill ever paid the bill uh, in any event. But uh, that was my first case, and and I saw a judge for the first time uh, uh, who I thought was uh, outstanding in terms of judicial temperament. Uh, you know, he just lets you put your case in, listen carefully, ask questions, and. Uh, uh, and I, it was tragic when I read uh, uh, some years later uh, uh, that he died on, uh, the, I think it was uh, Henry Hudson Parkway or somewhere uh, uh, in a car. Uh, it must have been an accident. Uh, so that was my first case. Uh, but I was getting a lot of, uh, you could say, related experience uh, trying arbitration cases. I was an advocate on a lot of arbitrations. Uh, 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 counsel for the Times and the News and the Post, uh, the best counsel they had, uh, I had to uh, deal with in uh, uh, arbitration cases, uh, proceedings before the National Labor Relations Board that went to hearings. And uh, so uh, I was uh, very active that way. And then there was a lot of matters we had in the early years uh, uh, in the civil court, not, not the civil court, it was not called that at that point, the city court and the municipal court. And I handled a lot of cases, but they almost all got settled after you make motions, you take uh, discovery, and at some point uh, uh, you engage in. And so most occasion settlement conversations, most of those cases went to uh, uh, settlement resolutions. So there were very few opportunities. I, I recall one case, it was a wrongful death case that I had. I also had product liability cases uh, where it was about to be tried, and, and, and a judge wanted to see the matter settled and, and, and said to me, bring the partner down, Ferrick. I said, you, you don't have the authority to settle the case. Bring the partner down. So I brought the partner down, and uh, he persuaded the partner to, to settle the case. So I, a case that I thought would go to a trial uh, didn't happen. But that was my experience. I was in the courthouse a lot. Uh, motion part, they call out the motion, your client, you, you argue it or you ask that it be adjourned. So I grew up with a lot of court experience and uh, and uh, it would have been nice to be, uh, I, I suppose, a trial lawyer, but uh, I really enjoyed what I was doing. I saw no reason to change it. So you enjoyed practice? Very much so. It was uh, a firm grew from 10 lawyers. When I, when I left the firm, it was almost 300 lawyers, and then some, at some point later it became 2,000 more lawyers. And uh, I, I met uh, so many wonderful people. They were my mentors, they my friends. Uh, I look back with tears. And uh, I know with Judge Mulligan, 
uh, he wanted uh, uh, he wanted to uh, uh, me to go to a large firm only because he wanted those who could get into large firms uh, go to the firms. So big firms would understand that Fordham uh, lawyers were worthy of uh, of being employed at those firms. And he was trying to expand the horizon of the law school uh, back when I uh, graduated. But uh, uh, I reached out to Judge Mulligan when uh, we were told uh, at the firm that he was thinking of leaving the bench. And I, I visited with him and uh, and uh, I asked him, is, is what I'm hearing true? And without telling him what I was hearing, he said it was true. And he explained to me uh, the plight that he was under in terms of the economics of his family when uh, uh, at a time when he wasn't so sure how many years he had left uh, based on, uh, on, on age in his own family. And, uh, and uh, I said, why don't you take a look at uh, Skadnov? He already had offers from Shea Gould uh, and I think possibly uh, Kale Gordon. I know he had conversations with Dennis McInerney, and I think there was at least one or, other, one or more other firms. They all wanted him. And I said, take a look at SCAD. And uh, he did. Uh, and we initially said, well, I don't know anybody there. I said, Judge, uh, I said, you know me, and you know a lot of Fordham lawyers are all at SCAD. And so he came down, and the uh, firm wanted him to come. And then he asked me, uh, I asked him because Fermi asked me to find out what, what he's looking for in a way of compensation. And he said, I have no, I have no expectation to do what you think is fair. He said, but make sure that I have a life insurance policy. So if anything happens to me, there's a, there's a, there's a policy on my life that, that uh, will go to my family. So we came up with some figure, gave it to him. That was the issue. And the only other uh, subject was uh, his place on the letterhead. Uh, at that time, you went on the letterhead when you, when you became a partner. So I was on the seventh or eighth partner, whatever it was at that point. And uh, I said to the managing partner of the firm, I said, I, Mulligan got to be ahead of me. I can't, I can't be ahead of him because he was my dean and he's a, a circuit court judge and, and he had been dean of law school. So uh, that was uh, that was an issue in the firm, and then an imagining partner eventually uh, came back to me and said, "John, we solved the problem." Uh, I, I said, "What did you come up with?" He said, "Nobody's name will be on the letterhead anymore. It'll be just in the, in the four or five main partners, and that's it. That's how that precedent was set." It's interesting, you know. We it's interesting our lives and various things. Uh, we don't have to go into now, but where we did similar things and met the same people. And Judge Mulligan. When I was clerking in the Second Circuit, uh, we were across the street from the main uh, courthouse, and uh, Judge Gerfine and Judge Mulligan were the only two circuit court judges uh, in the building. And I got to know him on the in the elevator first time. He just introduced. He said, "Hi, uh, I'm Bill Mulligan." I mean, he had no airs about him, and we got on actually beautifully. He was a wonderful guy. Um, he was a he was a, a truly wonderful person. His son asked me, or he asked me to. He had had a stroke at that point. If I would be one of his two trustees with his son, and uh, and I call his son Bill, calling me after he died, and he said, "John, there's really no work here because of that insurance policy." Oh, great! So uh, he was a wonderful. That's why they they called you then and even now, John the Good. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the <laughs> you liked scanning so much. Why did you leave? 
Well, it was uh, uh, interesting. Um, you know, I, I, as when I was at Skadden, um, uh, I did uh, all the way. Uh, I was there for 21 years, important for I think uh, uh, 13 years, and uh, and and was on the executive committee, and uh, and uh, obviously was doing well financially. But I always accompanied my uh, time at Skadden uh, and, and with the support of the firm in uh, service activities. Uh, Fordham Law School, uh, uh, much later, but uh, for many years, bar associations, American Bar Association, State Bar. I was on committees. Uh, I, as you know, I, I, I played a, a role on behalf of the bar with the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. Also, a proposed amendment to abolish the Electoral College system. And uh, so, bar associations were part of my life. And uh, and I, and I thought that uh, at some point I would like to maybe work for a congressional committee, but I couldn't do that because my parents weren't well. And, and uh, so I was, I was tied uh, to New York. And, and that was very much on my mind as I went into my uh, 40s at the time. And, uh, and I was active uh, with Dean McLaughlin in, in the life of the school, uh, President of the alumni. If you go back to when he became the dean, there was a dean search, and I was asked by the chair of the committee if I would want to put my name in for the deanship. That was in 1971, 70. And I said, No, I'm fully engaged in practice. And uh, uh, 10 years later, uh, uh, when I got a similar uh, call, uh, I was in a different place. And part of the reason I was in a different place, I think, was. Uh, uh, one, a, uh, uh, an involvement in the life of the school with Dean McLaughlin, who asked me to be his president of the alumni, that uh, indicated to me how much I enjoyed uh, doing things having to do with the, the law school and helping the law school uh, uh, along. And then when I met with Father Finley, the president of Fordham University, uh, when Dean McLaughlin said he's going to become a judge and, and now there was going to be a vacancy in the deanship, uh, um, uh, Father Finley was a great priest. I was on the board of trustees at Fordham University at the time. And he said to me, how about coming over uh, to the law school, for, uh, helping it develop a vision for its future. And, uh, and if you want, uh, you can stay as of counsel or become of counsel. I understand lawyers uh, uh, do that. And, uh, and, and, and it was something in that conversation that resonated with me uh, with reference to the Society of Jesus and, uh, uh, and seeking a uh, assistance through the deanship of the uh, dean of the law school, uh, leading in uh, perpetuating and maybe shaping a vision for the future of the school. And that was very empowering to me. So uh, I, I thought about it for three or four months. The deadline was in September. And uh, and I talked to, I talked to my father about it. He wasn't happy with the idea because of economics, and uh, I had six kids at the time, and, but I was doing well and had savings uh, as a result of that. And uh, and my mother wasn't well; she was starting to uh, lose her memory. And uh, and my wife, I think, was uh, quietly uh, very supportive of my accepting it. Uh, I think in part. Uh, Thought that she would, I'd have a lot more time on my, uh, to spend with her and the family, and uh, so when I put it all together, I guess I, I just said, "Well, you're not going to be able to come back this way. Um, uh, you, you, you're, you're leaving uh, what you built, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, after 21 years, 
And uh, I said, well, take a chance. And uh, because it, 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 it was something in me that said that uh, uh, this is this is really going to be my opportunity to serve full time. I saw it as a service position. Okay, when you got to school, uh, were you surprised by anything, or you've been, you know, alumni association student, everything else? Was there anything there that you weren't expecting? I, I would say a lot. Uh, um, for two years, I, 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 I there was an uneasiness in one I had. Uh, I was a practicing lawyer and now became dean of a law school. Uh, I used to go to uh, uh, meetings of law school deans across the country, and uh, and 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 maybe there was one or two with uh, who gone from practice into the deanship immediately, but uh, you didn't see that in any of the major law schools at the time. And uh, so I felt, uh, you know, who's this guy? Uh, they were scholars and teachers, and uh, they come up in the academic enterprise. I did not. And uh, so there was a there was a little bit of that, and and then I I began to realize so much of my work was to uh, uh, I didn't really think that that would be the case, but we'd be fundraising uh, I, uh, to get a, a building expansion in place, and uh, and idea of then leaving fundraising one uh, one couldn't dream uh, and support things at the school if you weren't. Uh, a dean that uh, went out and tried to raise money. We had no development staff uh, to speak of. We had maybe had one person to help the dean at that point uh, early on in my uh, deanship. Um, and uh, uh, I began to settle in. Uh, we had a lot of uh, expectations by the faculty as they weren't happy with it. Some weren't happy with their salaries. Uh, uh, there were uh, uh, there was a need for uh, some uh, additional people in the library, additional secretarial support. So I had all uh, this list from the American Bar Association from 1981 before I started. All kinds of things a law school should be doing to enhance itself, and uh, and uh, and I worked on that until 1986. Uh, started in 1982, and in 1986 the ABA says to to the law school. You no longer have to submit these uh, reports that I would have to report what we're doing maybe two, two or three times a year. And I thought that was a high watermark for me. I said, finally, we got the, we got the accrediting authority off our backs, and, uh, and we had double the size of the a physical plant. The faculty who weren't uh, complaining about salaries, we were competitive with the, the top schools in the country, which is where we should have been, and, and, and we did get there. And, uh, and then I, I started to uh, uh, see uh, areas of service and other uh, ways because the faculty had so many things that they wanted to see happen at the school, like yourself, uh, intellectual property uh, conference, and uh, other faculty members building. Uh, uh, and, 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 and almost everything I did was based on consensus. I, my model of leadership was not... Uh, uh, thinking that I had the, uh, all the ideas. I had very few ideas other than I, I could recognize good ideas of others. And, uh, and, and, and others came, like yourself. Uh, you had a vision uh, to build <coughs> an intellectual property program and conference uh, that someday would uh, uh, not lose money. And uh, although you had to, one had to take a risk for a few years. And uh, I just wanted to do that. Uh, not only with you, Professor Hansen, but uh, with many others at the school. 
Yeah, well, I have to tell you that uh, we wouldn't have uh, the IP conference or all this stuff we were doing in IP without you because uh, this was going to be international. And at that point, nobody in IP was concerned about international, but only concerned about their own country. There was no globalization of it. It was just beginning. EU was just starting to think about IP law. And uh, it, it, it was a vision, yeah, of maybe we could do something here, but wouldn't be another dean in the country who would have risked the money. The first, it cost $15,000 in those, in that money in those days. And that was gonna be a tremendous risk and you took it. And I said, you know, it's only gonna be, I sort of worked out what's gonna happen. Only gonna be maybe 800, then 600, then 200 or something like that. <laughs> three years, then there won't be anything. Uh, and I paid for my own travel, so I wouldn't be in expense. But it was your support that made it happen. There wasn't another dean in the country. Even deans that followed you wouldn't have done that. So I'm forever grateful for that. And, yeah. and of course, we have that conference today. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, you know, it's, uh, that was possible because of the alumni of the school. Uh, as a result of the, of the work, I, I had to engage in fundraising for the doubling of the school, and that took place uh, in October of 1984. And, uh, and I had spent a lot of time going all over the country, wherever our graduates were located. They want to know more about what's happening at the school. I went everywhere, and we created alumni chapters and, and the like. And, uh, and, and at that point, when you came along, it probably had to be, is it the 1990s? Yeah, early 90s. The mid '90s, uh, we had so much support coming in from uh, uh, the alumni from all over the country. Because uh, one, I was now a, 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 an older dean; I was in position for uh, maybe 12, 13 years at that point, and uh, and I always felt that uh, I could find support, of, uh, financial support, pretty much for anything the faculty wanted to do. That's great. Well, I mean, the, the the reality is, you know, and I was there through the the deans before you and and after, and uh, you were really the person who brought Fordham Law School into the twentieth and twenty first century, um, and largely because people trusted you, gave you money and your vision and everything else, uh, it it made a tremendous difference. I mean, the the, the impact you had was remarkable and uh, having seen it, I'm very impressed with it and I'm so thankful to this day for the contribution that you made. Well, I, I just wanna say, and I thank you for your uh, uh, statement. I really built on the foundations that were uh, 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 laid by Mulligan, McLaughlin, before Mulligan, Wilkinson, and, uh, and uh, you had graduates out there who were their students uh, who responded to the needs of the school, uh, were distinguished in uh, public service, governor, judges. Uh, so uh, I, I really was a recipient of, uh, of a great foundation and, and, and felt blessed to have the opportunity to build on it. Okay. Um, so what, what was the reason you left being dean? Of course, deans usually are fairly short duration. <laughs> quite long. Uh, 
why, why did I leave the state? It was getting, it was, you know, I, I was conscious uh, when I was, uh, had that conversation with uh, Father uh, Finley, I was 44 years of age. And then I, when I accepted it a few months later, I had turned to 45. And then when I started, I was uh, still 45, but about to be uh, uh, for, uh, 46. And now I was, uh, uh, at the time I was focusing on uh, leaving, I would have had 20 years. So I was about to be 66. And I felt there was something more I could do. I didn't know what it was. Uh, and I, I felt that the school was doing well at that time. Uh, we had a plan to celebrate our 100th anniversary. We had a commitment from the university to, to have a new building. And I just sort of took stock of everything. And uh, I said, this uh, would be, I, I, there's still something left at age 66, I said to myself. And uh, what it was, I didn't know. And a new dean of the school, would have a wonderful opportunity to get to know the alumni through the celebration of the 100th anniversary, and then uh, uh, put put some uh, detail on this uh, agreement that we're going to have a new building. And uh, so it was the perfect time. Uh, I thought school was strong, the market was was fine for employment by our students, and uh, if I thought there was a uh, there was a weakness, certainly uh, uh, need for a, a, a new building. It could be adjacent to the old building, uh, which is what I thought at the time, or it could be an entirely new building as, as it came to be uh, 2014. Uh, but uh, to have remained, uh, uh, you know, if you, you take it, take it all, all the way to 2014, my heavens, uh, I'd be as old as some of the presidential candidates. Uh, and, uh, and, and in my mind at the time, that was an age where uh, most most people settled down, and uh, uh, and my uh, I saw my father retire at uh, 65, my uncle uh, Pat retire at 65, but uh, but I I I realized that wasn't going to be for me because it was an internal restlessness that I had, and and I never thought uh, Scadden wanted me to come back to the firm. The chief judge asked me if I would be uh, interested in being a first dean of the Judicial Center uh, for the courts. Uh, I just thought that another administrative job would be hard at that point since I was looking to find myself in a different, and as it turns out, the last uh, X years have been filled with uh, probably more public services than I ever uh, performed in my whole life. Yeah, I think, I think that's true, just looking at your record. Let me ask you this. The practice of law obviously has changed over the years. How different is the practice of law today, if there is a difference, I won't put words in your mouth, compared to practice of law today? Well, I, certainly one, uh, one difference uh, is the presence of uh, women, uh, presence of uh, minorities. Uh, when I graduated from law school, uh, uh, when I was practicing law school, there were uh, not a lot of women uh, in, in the legal profession at that time. Uh, not, it was not diversified. It's still not sufficiently diversified. Uh, uh, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more diversity today. Certainly, women and 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 minority in other groups. Uh, but uh, so that's uh, that's one uh, difference. Uh, another difference uh, uh, is. Uh, 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 there was a tradition that I picked up at a firm like Scadden. It was a small firm when I started there. It was important to get involved in, in the work of bar association. And, uh, and 
and and see the bar associations uh, and their committees as as a way to uh, serve. And so I I got very heavily involved, as I mentioned before, and uh, and uh, it came a time I would suppose not not just the, the the last decade, but maybe a little bit before that, that I was noticing that few uh, and fewer. Uh, uh, lawyers seem to be going into the bar association activities as much as was present uh, relative to the number of lawyers in my generation. Now, having said that, uh, City Bar uh, told me uh, at their annual meeting, not told me, but told us at the annual meeting, which was a virtual meeting, that the membership just passed 25,000. So, so, so there may be uh, a, a, a more strengthening going on of the bar association. I think the American Bar Association has been challenged uh financially uh and 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 maybe in in the membership area but i think they they're working at that too so uh it wasn't any question uh, early on but that that was an important part of who you were as a lawyer uh, to join a bar association and and contribute uh uh get to know other lawyers work with other lawyers and contribute to the uh, the common good so I, I see that as a change and also uh, you know, it was an emphasis on billing clients, certainly in my years, and the importance of economics, and uh, but the balance with uh, service obligations at the same time. And uh, and today, uh, I think it's maybe harder for people to do things because they need uh, two spouses working uh, to uh, support uh, uh, just a modest uh, livelihood, have a house, and 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 you got educational costs for your children, so. Uh, uh, getting involved in, in some of the kinds of activities I was encouraged uh, to get involved in, you know, uh, maybe different today because of uh, the circumstances of uh, a lot of lawyers. But uh, but there are a lot of lawyers doing a lot of good. And uh, I was asked to give a talk today uh, uh, later this year at a program the city bar is putting together on the rule of law uh, about the uh, what I would say about uh, uh, the expectations uh, people going into the uh, legal profession should have in terms of their uh, uh, their lives in the law, and uh, and it's, I, I happen to share with the person who interviewed me today about giving a talk on that subject. Uh, what I said in 2017 at an American Bar, uh, uh, Bar Association meeting that. Uh, uh, that only 20% of the legal needs uh, of the people of the country are being satisfied by uh, counsel because uh, most people can't afford counsel. Uh, poor people, working class people, and, uh, and that places a, a, a major obligation on all of us who are lawyers uh, uh, to ask ourselves how we can contribute to, to dealing with that uh, growing uh, societal need for uh, access to justice. People uh, hesitate uh, with, with, a, with a, a good claim to go to court because they can't afford attorney, can't, can't afford the, uh, the legal fees, uh, or they're getting uh, thrown out of uh, uh, where they live. Uh, and, and how do they how do you help them? And that's uh, that's been an ethical aspiration of our profession in our in our our codes of ethics for a long time. So I think that's a real challenge for this generation and generations to come of lawyers. And I remain engaged like yourself in, in that field, feeling I, I have an obligation to do so as long as I have the health to do so. Yeah, well, the, 
uh, in defense of some of the lawyers, is the world 2008 recession, I think, caused companies to think differently about legal fees. I mean, it used to be, when I graduated, institutional clients and maybe two rainmakers and everyone else was doing the law. And after that, they were looking for ways to reduce costs. And they saw these law firms with large bills and largely built by young associates and hourly work. And they just said enough is enough. And now we want you to give us the price for this, the price for this. We don't even want first and second year associates on the case. You can train them. We're not going to train them. Uh, and the loyalty of the client, which it used to be to the firm, if you did a, especially if you did a great job on a case, you'd get the next case. That is sort of left for more of a bottom. In fact, I don't blame the lawyers. Marketing people, I think, have taken over a lot of the firms and what they're doing. And so the lawyers themselves don't have security. Um, so the, the, the firm is not loyal necessarily to the lawyers like they used to be. And with the headhunters and everything else going around, a lot of lawyers aren't loyal to the firm. So unfortunately, the economics of the situation has caused people to have less time, as you say, for bar associations or less time for the poor. Uh, I hope think that that can be changed, but it is the law though, practice itself is still kind of a joyous thing of actually doing the law. It's the stuff around it that's become more difficult and hopefully in the future, I think we can, I hope we can find ways to sort of recapture some of where the law was a jealous mistress and I don't think many two people think of it now. But Let me just add that uh, I will send you after this uh, program today um, uh, a, a memorandum I got uh, or, or an email I got from my colleague uh, comparing uh, 2008 and the present moment in terms of diversity and the legal profession, how, uh, how, how women uh, as a percentage of, uh, of, the, of the lawyer population and, and diversity of color and other categories where where that was relative to the size of the profession in 2008 where it is today there's been a, a great concern that uh, that groups are going to be adversely impacted put aside uh, you know bottom lines and costs i understand that uh so that the challenge going forward is uh, uh still with us uh to be sure that uh, diversity doesn't get lost in uh, in the change in economics and demands uh, as a result of the of the virus and uh, in the present moment. Yeah, that's a very important point. Uh, okay, law schools. How different are law schools today from when you took over being the dean? Well, in night and day. <laughs> uh, first of all, the diversity of the student body. We, as you know, at Fordham Law School, we have uh, uh, students from uh, in a, a master's in law program and other programs too. Uh, from all over, all over the United States or uh, all over the world. Uh, that certainly did not reflect Fordham Law School when I was a student. Uh, you know, most of us, uh, uh, we were half the size of the present school and uh, uh, a lot of people like myself, you know, uh, we, we had maybe two or three, four women and uh, almost no diversity at the school. So so that, that part changed, has changed dramatically, night and day. Uh, the other part is uh, all of the programs to help students become more practice ready 
when they leave the law school, uh, through clinical legal education, through, uh, through uh, uh, all the volunteer activities that are around to participate and uh, getting skills uh, uh, ready for practice. Uh, the curriculum of the law school is, uh, is um, fabulous uh, in, 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 in the variety. And, and, and also with, uh, online programs have been uh, developed uh, because maybe there needs to be more, more teaching online. Uh, and I, I don't think online really is a substitute for in-person teaching, but sometimes you got to deal with the necessities of getting an education uh, get, uh, when, when maybe uh, it's not available uh, um, in person. So, uh, so uh, I also uh, uh, think the uh, service part of, of a school like Fordham uh, is, uh, as it gets expressed, in all kinds of student volunteer activities. So we have like something like 26, 27 uh, student groups involved in serving the public interest, whether it be housing matters, landlord tenant matters, helping poor people get access to justice. I mean, that, that, that was not present at the law school when I was a student. You had a moot court program, a small moot court program, you got the law review. Uh, today, there's a, a lot of journals at the school. so. The school really uh, uh, has blossomed to a point where it can truly call itself an international and national law school. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're getting a little, we're getting close to the end. Let me ask you one question about you were working on <coughs> possibly some thought of abolishing electoral college. What was the reason for that? Well, I, I, let me qualify by the first thing you said. I worked on that subject from 1966 to 1979. In 1966, both major parties uh, wanted to uh, abolish essentially or an electoral college or have major reform of the electoral college. And the American Bar Association put itself into that field and asked me to have a service uh, commitment to it and, and a special advisor to its commission and then testifying before Congress as to its positions. Uh, so I got involved in, the, in that movement at the time that was uh, forced on the system by George Wallace, uh, wanting to get enough electoral votes so neither major party candidate would have a majority, and he'd become the kingmaker, and, it, and, and, and possibly, and would be able to uh, move forward his uh, somewhat segregationist agenda. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I left. I left. I, I left the uh, course at that point because my life. Uh, uh, I became dean of law school a few years after the vote was in 1979. It it, uh, it it was at a high support for the reform, passed the House of Representatives by almost an 80 percent vote, and then as the years went on, less interest. And today you wouldn't be able to get a favorable vote, in my opinion, to abolish the college. And I've done an article recently for the. Uh, uh, American Magazine at their request on, on the subject of the Electoral College. Uh, I may do an article for the Fordham Law Review next year uh, that updates an article I did in 1968, why it should be abolished. I gave all the reasons in that article. And just to take a look at those issues today, and, and not that I think this, uh, anything's about to happen in a way of reform, but that was never my test uh, for doing something that I'd be interested in doing. Uh, so. I don't know if it's answered your question fully, but uh, my my agenda uh, at this point is 
uh, pretty much uh, uh, focused on developing a civics ag uh, agenda for myself and my social justice center, and maybe for our school to think about uh, where lawyers get involved in uh, educating about the rule of law, about our constitution in the uh, primary grades and in the secondary grades. And uh, over the last month I've had uh, with people I, I served with at the social justice center, conversations with groups in New York uh, City that are very much engaged in civics education at a time where they're cutting the cost and not giving more support to civics education. On the contrary, I feel that we got to build civics education uh, to have a, a long enduring society uh, of uh, citizens who understand the values of our country, get engaged in the values of our country. And, uh, and there are a lot of people out there who are promoting, <clears throat> promoting that agenda, including Judge Katzman, Chief Judge of the Second Circuit and others. Right. And it's where I see myself, uh, whatever energy I have left, uh, working on. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, it's incredible. You're still doing stuff as strongly and even more uh, now than ever. So you're really quite remarkable. My final question is, in your life, if you could change one thing, maybe you don't want to, if you could change one thing, what would you have changed? Well, I would have tried to uh, <clears throat> focus on, uh, um, on how I might have uh, done a better job in striking balance uh, between uh, activities and work life and your family. And uh, uh, I, I'm now at a point where uh, I, all of my children are in their 40s and 50s. and. Uh, I love them dearly. I, I, I know that I think I know they feel that way about their parents, but uh, I wish that I had done more uh, with my children, particularly the younger children. When you have a large family, uh, you get you get older, right? When the younger the, when you you have the younger kids, and uh, and I was accelerating at that point in terms of my work life, and so I I didn't have the kind of time with my two sons, I have four daughters and two sons. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I say to myself, uh, those years are gone. You, you can't recover those years. And I see my, my grandchildren uh, uh, graduating from, uh, we have the first of 11 grandchildren got a, a first postgraduate degree the other day from Fordham. And we got two, two kids. So uh, that's, that's the area I would, how could I figure out the, uh, the balance? And I think the current generation of uh, lawyers, and as I say, uh, with a working spouse, uh, are, do, are are trying to, uh, to, to 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 strike that, and uh, and, and maybe given, uh, maybe given more time uh, 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 to that, uh, which means it, it takes away from bar association activities possibly. But there's a lot of ways you can serve the bar through bar association activities, and 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 create the time. I, I think, notwithstanding, so that's really where I would be. Uh, uh, in terms of, um, of um, other parts of my life, you know, I thought I might be involved in uh, uh, the elective process, maybe politics, uh, but I, I found myself at the beginning of my life involved uh, in the crafting of a constitutional amendment, and uh, and it, it came home to me maybe uh, maybe my role was to uh, uh, to some extent be a reformer. Yeah, well, to a large extent. 
Uh, well, John, all I can say is for me, you'll always be John the Good. You're still the John the Good. And for the for the people listening, John is never like that people calling him John the Good, but he actually is John the Good. And thanks so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. And congratulations on all you've done and all you'll do in the future. Thank you. Thank you. And all the best to you. It's an honor and privilege to participate. And I thank your colleagues as well. Thank you.